Beyond the Wrench with Jay Ganinen from Wrenchway. Welcome to Beyond the Wrench. My name is Jay Ganinen and I am your host. On this week's episode, we had the pleasure of being joined by Aaron Picozzi from American Diesel Training Centers. And a lot of really cool things in this conversation, including Aaron giving us a little detail on what American Diesel Training Centers does, which is very innovative, a really, really cool way of going about getting more technicians into the business. But we, we then talked even further about the traits that they look for in people coming into their school, right? What are the, the characteristics of a non-traditional student in what they are looking for that proves as successful, right? I think there's just a, a lot of really good takeaways that Aaron shares with us and it really appreciate their innovative approach to finding more technicians. Now, this week's episode is brought to us by our partners at Diesel Laptops. Diesel Laptops is your shop efficiency solution company. They do this through diagnostic tools, diesel technician training, repair information, parts lookup tools, and a call center staff with diesel technicians. Diesel Laptops is committed to working with you to find the right solution for your company that fits your needs and your budget. Uh, Very great company, great partner of ours, uh, great product. They have a lot of really, really cool tools and training uh, for anybody out there that's looking for ways to get up to speed on your diesel business. So go check out Diesel Laptops and check out this episode uh, with Aaron Picozzi. It's a really good one. Take care. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Aaron Picozzi from the American Diesel Training Centers. Aaron, how are you doing today? Very good, Jay. Thanks for having me. That's good. I This is an exciting episode to do because I think what you do at American Diesel Training Centers is really interesting. I think you guys are doing a lot to address the technician shortage. I think it's I've known you guys for a while now and thinking that you guys really do a good job with this. So I'm excited to talk more about that. And then uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of different stuff. But let's start there. What is it that you do at American Diesel Training Centers? Yeah, well, thank you. I, I've been following you guys for quite some time. And I think you're doing a, a great job as well in the tech industry. And I think what is so different from what we do and you do and a lot of others do is that we really look outside of the industry and we create an opportunity for individuals to get into the industry by removing the two biggest barriers, which are time and money. That's the elevator pitch of what we are at American Diesel. Well, and it, it's fascinating because you're taking somebody that might not traditionally be drawn into the industry and turning them into, you know, not only, I guess, catering the interest, right? Like even letting them know that we have an industry that's worthy of them coming to, but creating a life for somebody that is probably better than the life they would have had had they gone down the route that they were going, right? Without question. Yeah, we, we really focus on taking individuals from sectors that perhaps are not exposed to this industry or don't have the opportunities that some others have. And we uh, target those uh, areas and demographics and pretty much extend it all a branch and say, hey, look, what can we do to help you out? If you're not sure about this industry, let's talk about it. And if you have interest in this industry, we're a great place to start if you are looking for some more formal education. It's pretty cool. Uh, what you guys do is awesome. Now, let's talk about your role within the company. So what what do you do? What Your title is, I believe, president, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, so give us a, an idea of what it is you do on a day-to-day basis. 
Yeah, well, being the president at American Diesel is like being the world's tallest midget, right? So the, <laughs> the, title, the title goes pretty far. We're a team about uh, 25, somewhere around there. And, and what I do really is, is multifold, but essentially keep, keep the trains running, make sure that we're all uh, doing what we need to do, keep that moving, work directly with clients, which would be companies that are looking for technicians, as well as work on kind of the finance back end of, of pretty much how we fund this whole thing and, and keep it running. So th- those are my big three areas. And it's a lot of stuff. I know you're, you're a busy guy. But we, we've talked about that before. I, I am always kind of fascinated by your schedule because you're you're going a million miles an hour. And it's uh, it's fun to, to watch. I don't know, living it, it's it's probably pretty intense. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. But it's fun, right? It is fun because what I like the most about what we do at American Diesel is that I know that every drop of effort I put in is going to come out in the back end that someone is really going to benefit from. Often folks that would have no ability to access a career move like this. So I'm happy to do it. Well, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that. So how did you get to this point? I'm always fascinated by the the guest background that we have. And your background is really cool. So how, how did you get to this point in your career? Yeah, I have a very unique background is the way I put it. I've, I've done a lot of stuff in a short period of time. And, that you have. And I was speaking uh, actually about that this morning because I, what I've always um, done in my career is I've doubled down. So while I'm working in some sector, I'm continuing education or I'm working on something else or volunteering. And so it's really helped me amass a lot of uh, experience. But with that being said, uh, the real quick speech of, of my background is I enlisted in the Coast Guard after two very questionable years at a New York public institution of SUNY Albany. Probably wasn't ready to go to college and that's all right. So I enlisted and I became a machinery technician. So in the Coast Guard, what that means is you're pretty much fixing anything that breaks. So that's really where I became a technician, mostly big diesel, but all the way down to if if a light wasn't coming on that I had to figure that out as well. So I did that for about seven years, bouncing around all over in the Pacific and the Atlantic, all over doing that. And, And what that really taught me One, it taught me a lot about merit and effort, but it also taught me about learning and creating a fundamental skill set and a base of engineering principles. Because if I had to go on a Taiwanese fishing boat, I didn't really have time to go to the manual. I had to go just figure it out when I showed up. And they very much understood that in the Coast Guard. They trained us to have those good problem-solving skills. Um, After that, got out, joined the Army National Guard, did some infantrymen stuff with that while working at a think tank in New York focusing on foreign policy research, very cool stuff there. Did some bespoke sales roles and brokerage, and then some of the fine American diesel and came on to run sales for them and have since been promoted up. So and, that's, that's my life. It's a, it's a really quick summary of a lot of stuff that you did. When, when you were doing the Coast Guard stuff, like how, how big of an area, like where all did you travel to? Yeah, it's, it's, the Coast Guard is such a unique organization because although it's about the size of the New York City Police Department, we're all over the world. I was on ships the whole time. In the Coast Guard, they call them cutters because everything nautical has to have a name that no one knows what it means. So I was on cutters. I was stationed in Newport, Rhode Island, patrolled the whole Northeast coast from Sandy Hook, New Jersey, up to the tip of Maine, doing search and rescue, focusing on fisheries enforcement, really cool stuff, just seeing wow. that part of the country. Yeah. And then from there, I went to school to become a diesel mechanic. And the way they do that is about a three-month program in Virginia. You go down, a hands-on training, and really focused on that. From there, I went to Hawaii. Uh, I was on a 378-foot boat, which for the Coast Guard is big, but in the Navy, I think they tow that behind one of their other boats just for fun. And out there, we went all over the world. I was in Russia. I was in Japan. I was uh, every little island you could think of in between there that we can't even find out. It was great. That's Down insane. From, 
yeah. Then I went over to Miami, Florida. So another very difficult place to live as a young, <laughs> young man with disposable income. I was in South Beach. Did that for a few years and they bumped me up to Jacksonville, Florida, where I eventually separated. So quite oh. a lot of time all over. Are yeah. there are yeah. there any good stories that you can share from your time in the Coast Guard? Yeah, defense is asking. But yeah, they, they were all really cool. From very large drug busts to doing these big uh, multinational, running multinational law enforcement teams in the Pacific, focused on things like shark finning and, and stuff like that it was just incredible. Doing multinational operations with China and Russia, which looking now, I don't think that would happen. And so really fun stuff, really fun rescues. And from an engineering perspective, I mean, we were fixing stuff just with our ingenuity in the middle of the ocean and trying to do that. So really fun problem solving with a lot of responsibility. And you got to see parts of the world that nobody else is going to see. Like if you go to a cocktail party, unless you're at uh, with somebody in the military, you're, you're probably you're, you can one up anybody in that regard. Yeah, I was. I mean, I don't. I don't think I'd be booking a trip to you know Petropavlovsk, Kamchatka, in Russia, or you know Palau, or Kiribati, and all these places that are just so unique. But I, I value that time very much. And while I was in the Coast Guard, I was finishing my undergraduate degree. So for all those out there that think they don't have time, you just got to make some. You know. And you're doing that right now too, right? Like you're. You're. you're uh... I, I'm doing my yeah an MBA at UNC. So I'm. Very lucky to have the opportunity to do that, but there's no free lunch. Quite tired, <laughs> but it's great. And where? so where do you live at? I live in Wake Forest, North Carolina. So right. our company is centered in Ohio. After freezing on boats in the northern Atlantic, I hightailed it somewhere warm. And then when I got out, I moved to uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Went a little too hot on that one. And the wife said, hey, we got to go somewhere else. So. Now we're in North Carolina. As as we're recording this, it's May second, and I think it's like forty five degrees in Wisconsin right now. So I, oh, I I I I totally get that. That's a smart deal. But no, it, it's it, your story is really cool in how you got to where you're at in in working for a really cool company, and so that's kind of what we want to talk about today is. It really the qualities of good performers and what you're maybe you're looking for because I feel like you guys are looking for maybe the attitude and aptitude as much as you are the technical skill right you're looking for people that have maybe a mindset that is going to help them in this industry and maybe let's start with that how do you find these people like what what is a good person that you bring in and and how do you really identify them? And, and you know, if these are people that don't maybe have all that much exposure to the industry. So what, walk me through the process there. What, what happens and how, how do you find these people? Sure. So we are very proactive in our search for these folks. We talk about active acquisition and passive acquisition. You can think of passive acquisition as a billboard. Someone has to drive by, look at it, and also have interest, right? So it's not really an effective use of of time if you have to really weigh all those factors coming, coming together. So what we do is we really target through all different varieties of digital media, social media, getting out there and finding the kind of person that we know would be a good fit based on the four or five years that we've been doing that. So that's how we literally, we also do that geographically because we think that's very important to fish in a small pond because there aren't very many people who want to move to Northern Michigan to do uh, roadside repair. But there are plenty of people up in northern Michigan that love being there and wouldn't mind doing roadside repair. So it really is taking that a different route to targeting those folks. And then when it really comes down to finding what would be a good fit, it is really changing that paradigm of what the industry believes. 
everybody right now, if you go up to them, they're looking for that farm kid who's got a whole set of tools and is willing to walk in with a rag over his shoulder and, and ready to get to work, right? So that, as much as we'd love to find that, is getting rarer and rarer. So we have to change the paradigm of, of how the industry approaches that and look outside. So what I claim we do in the most succinct way as I continue to ramble is to look for people in the high effort, low skill, low wage sectors and show them the opportunity of being in diesel. There are plenty of people out there that are busting their hump and working really hard, but they're making bad money and they didn't have two and a half years and $45,000 to go to school to come out with a certificate so they can say, hey, I, I want to work hard for you and your shop. We just try to cut the line and give them those principles and, and get them out there to work. Well, I think you hit it right on the head. And that's something we've dealt with in the Midwest. And I've talked about this a lot and other things. The farm kid we all know and remember is different today. Like farms aren't, especially we're in Wisconsin, dairy farms everywhere. When I was growing up in, in farm kids, well, they got consolidated and it turned into bigger farms. And you didn't really have the farm kids working there anymore. If they did, they were more along the lines of running the business of farming, not so much going out and working on the actual equipment or something like that. So uh, I don't even think it's just a um, like it's it just the whole in, that whole industry changed. So a lot of those kids that may have had exposure to it in the past really aren't there. And it's uh, I think that's maybe a, a reason why a lot of us sit around and wait for that farm kid to walk in the door and they're few and far in between anymore. Absolutely. And, we, and even if, if you take that farm kid, which you're, you're hit right in the head, they are not as plentiful as we wish. And it's, the, things have changed and that's okay. So we just yeah. need to be adaptable. So when you look at, let's just take the conventional route, the standard trade school, community college or a private institution, whatever, whatever it may be. Even if you were relying on that, the number show, the throughput, the output is just not nearly enough to keep up with job creation, attrition and retirement. It's just impossible. So if you look at it from an economic standpoint, it's a pretty simple problem to, to solve. You've got to get more in the top of the funnel, start creating more, and the market will level set. I agree. And I, that's where I think what you're doing is so neat. Now, when when you're looking at them, how how do you distinguish somebody that is going to have success in your program? I, I mean, is it – or uh, – uh, distinguish isn't the right word, but really be able to identify somebody that's going to come in and has a high probability of success. Yeah, that's, well, people are people, right? So if I could hit it at a hundred percent, I'd uh, have a lot more money and would probably be taking this call from a uh, very nice beach. One thing we really look at is opening it up to a wide variety of people. We are historically a very male dominated, white dominated industry. That's just what statistics show. So let's be proactive in opening up the doors for others. We've had a disproportionate number of females come through our program, much higher than love it. industry standards. And we are very proactive about that. And what we found is that they become some of our best employees. They come on and go out into the industry and they absolutely crush it. So anybody who might have some old thoughts about that, it's, it's time to uh, renew that idea because they're missing out on a ton of opportunities. So that's, yes, that's one thing. We've opened it up a lot. Number two is by removing those barriers, that time and money aspect, you can find individuals who are willing to make that leap. Very few people can go, our program is five weeks. That's even a difficult stretch for people to go without pay, especially in the current environment. So you're going to tell me that someone can take out student loans, which we are vehemently against, to go to a school and now they're in debt for $45,000 and missed two years of earning. Well, 
that's a difficult thing for folks to do. So open it up to others and find a conducive way to bring them into the program. And, and we've done just that. So that, that's really been the exciting part of our job. It's cool. And so you, you bring them to a campus still, right? Correct. So what we do is we will target companies approach us. And this is where the, the business really got fun. When we established ourselves and the market responded in a way that they needed a lot of technicians. So people were more willing to listen to us and take that chance. And we have now proven and validated it with data that it works. So what we will do, companies will approach us and they say, hey, we want to hire your graduates. And I say, well, it doesn't work that way because everybody wants to hire any technician at this point. So let's get creative. And what we do is we ask companies to pay them while they go through our program, just enough to keep the lights on. We really got to make an equitable split here, cover their lives and take care of all of this stuff. And in turn, we will go out and we will do that targeted recruitment, do that vetting and present them to the company. If the company likes them, don't take our word for it, interview them, see if they're going to be a good fit, then send them through the program. So by doing that, we are not only solving the problem for the companies, we are giving these individuals what they believe is like too good to be true. Paid training for free, completely paid for if they stay with the company. Travel out there, lodging, food, a paycheck, skill set, tools, everything is given to them and they can do it completely debt-free because the industry has responded in such a way that they need folks. And we have created a program that is cost and time efficient for everybody involved that they're willing to take that. Mm. So advice for the shops when they're interviewing one of these individuals, like what, what is it? One of the things we talk about with Wrenchway a lot, and this is more specific to some of the more veteran technicians, but it's talking about, and even honestly, even recent tech school graduates, whoever it is, is trying to make sure you find a fit for your culture as much as like the, the technological skill, because in your case, you're vetting them and you're, you know, you're, you're presenting them to a shop to really go through their due diligence with them. But it is a little bit of a different uh, approach. And and I think it's so helpful from a shop standpoint because it allows them to get to know the person a little bit and get, get to know, you know, the, the um, I don't know, that, like who they are and are they going to fit in with what we do? Or do you see something similar with, with your kind of the way that you go through things? Without question. And a lot of what we do is back-end work that is completed even before we have a conversation with that student the first time. I am lucky enough to be in the position that I could be in that I uh, don't have to try to sell clients on anything. And we do that with clients. We do that with students. We never have really tried to twist arms because it's not going to be a good fit. And we structure the business that if we don't produce long-term successful uh, clients, we're not profitable. So it's a lot more understanding when we're talking with companies to be like, hey, look, this is a very fair thing. We're not a pump and dump kind of thing. Our success is hinging on the success of that student and their success with you. So everybody has a desire for this to work. So that, that's one thing, right? Another thing that we really look at and, and we want to talk to these companies about is that the job isn't completed when that student shows up, the graduate shows up in their, in their shop. It's just beginning. Anybody who tells you that you're going to have an A-level independent technician on day one after a five-week training program is full of it. And I'm very clear about what we're producing. We're producing an individual with an entry-level skill set with a high ceiling, but they're going to be able to do these basic tasks to generate revenue for you on day one. That's what we're trying to do. That solves the problem as quickly as possible. And then they are going to need to be nurtured and advanced through this program. So if you want to bring someone in and throw them on third shift and they're the only person there, well, our program is not for you. And I don't know if there is a program for you, but best of luck, we don't want to work with you. So we're able to do that. 
I want to hear that these folks are bought in, that they have a program, that they have a mentorship plan, that they have a succession plan and a growth plan. Once I sit, start hearing all of those things, I, I think, okay, we're in luck. We're going to do this. If they need a little bit of coaching on that, we're happy to help and share with what we've seen across you know, multiple different sectors of this industry all over the country and, and give you data on what works in our experience and what doesn't. So those are some things that we really break down with those companies. What do you see out of like good mentorship programs? Because I think that's that's not just even just related to what you guys are doing, right? That's all over the place. And and I think it's so important. And maybe in some cases where we're not very good as an industry and in making sure that we're taking care of these people once we get them in the door. I'm curious as to what you see out there that it makes these shops really successful once they get those people in the door. Yeah. So it is very difficult for a good mentor or a good mentor system to succeed without the other. So that's very, very important. The company needs to be aware of their mentoring, their mentorship plan and what that looks like. And everyone needs to be apprised of that. Plus you have to have someone who's engaged and willing to do that. So some of the, it might be easier to talk about some of the fail points that we've seen. Yeah. And so one of those is if you're sending an entry level individual to a flat rate shop, that's going to be difficult for them to have a real revenue stream. It will also be very difficult to give them a mentor that is not financially incentivized to spend the time to help that individual. So if you're working in a flat rate shop and you want to put someone in a mentorship thing, you have to find a way to maintain their income while they give their time to the other individual. So by pegging their compensation to the efficacy of that entry-level worker, it makes a fun, exciting mentorship program. So I always like hearing that, and I don't know how many companies are doing that, but it's a fun way to do it, that everybody wins. And yes, go ahead, Jay. Well, I I think you're spot on in in the person and the process because it is, you know, if if you've got a technician that's just not meant for mentoring people, I think we've all seen them around where, you know, I've worked with them (laughs) forever, but it, it is like there's people that just aren't going to be good mentors and that's because they're probably really good at what they do and they don't want anybody to bother them. But, you know, I think they're, you hit the nail on the head with some of these incentive programs. And I've seen anything from, they take the hours that that, that young person bills out and that goes onto their, onto their check in that flat rate system. I think that's a really good system or it seems like a really good system. I, I, I've seen where they get a percentage bump based on the person working with them. I, I think there's room for creativity there too, uh, you know, to, to be able to create an actual process and not just for that one person, but the person that comes behind it. And, you know, hopefully you're creating a pipeline of people that are coming in. And if you've got a good process there, the likelihood that the shop is going to succeed and the person is going to succeed is is far greater, I assume. It, it most definitely is. And so, I think it's very simple to for shops to look at it from a very, just a basic math problem, right? They're like, there's no way we can be shelling out X for the first couple of weeks here. So, okay, well, let's just, let's explore that. Is it more worthwhile to have this individual quit and not be able to, to fill that? And for them to tell all their buddies that are technicians, say, don't work there, they're going to throw you to the wolves. It's a waste of time. Or is it better to just invest in your employee because they're an asset and say, hey, we're going to make sure that you can get up to speed and you're going to be off to the races and doing well. I think we all know the answer. It's just a little bit more difficult when you're looking at it from a very short-term period. So I I would advise people to expand their thoughts on that. That would just be one piece. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely on the head here because that's, 
you know, ASC's got a stat, and we use it quite a bit, where it's 41 or 42% leave the industry within the first two years that they're in it. And I think so much of it stems from that first couple of weeks when that person's in the shop and and setting the stage for what expectations are and having clear expectations so the person knows. I know going back to my time as a young technician, terrible technician, by the way, uh, <laughs> when, <laughs> when I was a young technician, I was nervous. And if I was standing around, you know, it, they would say, well, grab a broom and you go grab a broom and you do, you know, whatever, like you do whatever you could to, to look busy. But you almost focused as much on looking busy as you did at, at like actually being productive in oh, yeah. in your role. And I, I think there's so many young techs that before they gain the confidence, they're it, they're stuck in that scenario that I was, which you're just you're running ragged, you're nervous and you don't want to look like you're not doing anything, but you're still not sure exactly what to actually do. And there's only so many times you can sweep the shop before you're like, okay, I, I've, I've already done this. Like I, I, I need something else to do. And you're maybe don't have the confidence to go ask somebody else in the shop for help. And again, falls back on the process of if you didn't have a good mentorship program, you probably wouldn't know who to ask, or mm-hmm. you, you're going to ask whoever's most comfortable, you're most comfortable with. And if that happens to be the weakest tech in the shop, then you've got that person learning from the weakest tech in the shop. You know, I like, I just think there's so many areas where process lacks there and that, that can be a killer. You know, you go through all this work, like you're saying, putting them through a program, getting them in and then only to see it kind of all fall apart. I just think that's, it's so hugely important to get these people into the right shop so that they take care of them and uh, can kind of cater them and get them to the point to where they're, Uh, knowledgeable enough to send them to a training or knowledgeable Mm -hmm. enough to do some of this stuff. But I I don't know. I, I know I'm going on a rant and preaching to the choir here, but I also think that's, that's something I want to get across to the shops that are listening out there is that, you know, something like this system, it is so important that you, you set them up for success once they're in there, because if you don't, you're just going to be chasing your tail forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most definitely. And People, it's a lot easier to focus on recruitment and uh, ignore retention because you can always find a reason why they left, right? You can always make up something and, and figure that out. But usually there are systemic problems and they need to be addressed. And so we go back to the mentorship thing. Like you mentioned, you want to incentivize the individual who will do the best job mentoring, whether that's the highest skill set or the most patience or the best communication, whatever it may be, that is up to the management to identify. And then you need to create an incentive program for that individual that is actually gonna work and bring that other person up. That's the goal, right? And it's a lot easier said than done, don't get me wrong. But if you start there, you're gonna see success nearly immediately. I I do wanna talk about another thing that we see with recruitment and particularly around this generation and and what they're looking for. So I'm the the company's resident millennial, I'll I'll always say. (laughs) And so so I'm often defending them. But uh, what we look for there, I think that there's a, that kind of gold watch mentality that you get one job, you work your 20 years, you get the gold watch retirement, you're out. They're no longer what we're looking for. What we found is that we'll have phenomenal candidates, really good candidates that are eager and have good backgrounds and all this. And we'll send them over to a company and the company may say, I, I don't know, they bounced around a lot with their jobs. And we said, yes, they have, because they're working entry-level jobs to make ends meet, and they're going to take whatever they can to, you see, even an incremental change. That's, that's fine. We don't want someone who's willing to rest on their laurels and work a very flat entry-level job with no drive. So be willing to tease out the narrative behind 
maybe why they left a fast food job after six months was because a better job opened up closer to home and they didn't have to pay for daycare. So these things are dynamic. So look beyond that. And we spend an incredible amount of time talking to these individuals before they even get over to a company, because we want to hear a little bit more and, and make that decision on whether they'd be a good fit. Or not. Yeah. And it, I mean, you look back to the, the entry of a lot of careers, myself included, uh, you know, it, it was, you're far more inclined to make choices than uh, that are, you know, if you don't have a family, you don't have all this other stuff to support and you can try some different things and see what you like and what you're good at. I think that took me a while to figure that out where, you know, Hey, you're, you're, you're not a great technician, but guess what? You're pretty good at this other stuff. And I think it's people kind of searching to figure out what they're good at. And I don't know if we should necessarily as an industry be scolding that. Not at all. Not at all. And when you hear, <clears throat> excuse me, when you hear from some of these folks and you start talking and say, hey, you know, tell me what got you interested in, in turning ranches. What, what have you done? They're like, you know, they'll start talking about their, their jobs at their work. And then they're the pretty standard entry level jobs. And then you go a little bit further and he goes, well, on the weekends, what I'll do is I'll go around and I'll, uh, I'll find like old uh, lawnmowers on Craigslist. I come back, I completely rebuild them and then sell them for profit. I'm like, you want to lead with that in this industry. You start <laughs> leading with that and we'll get to the other stuff later. But they don't, a lot of folks don't know what they need to kind of uh, portray and to explain and what would be of interest. So we do a lot of career coaching through that and all of that stuff. So yeah, it's very helpful to do that and find that attitude and aptitude. So you're, you're throwing a lot at them in five weeks, right? It's, it's, uh, it's a lot to comprehend, but it's also something that they're probably driven to, to learn about. You know, I think especially those that have, have maybe not found their home yet in terms of a career, it's a beautiful thing to be able to, to kind of see people that are coming in and, and truly want to learn uh, rather than just kind of checking the box of like, oh, yeah, I went to school. You know, like th that's intense because they know at the end of the five weeks I'm going somewhere to work mm -hmm. and I, I, I've got to pick up on some of this stuff. Do you see the interest level in learning is different than maybe if they were to go to a traditional school like you did when you, when you were growing up? Absolutely. I, what we see and the fact that most of these folks come in uh, now we're running about like 80, 90 percent are hired before they even show up. Wow. So we sit them down and we say, look, this is a five week working interview. You can be fired. You can you have to take this seriously. This is a job. You're training on the job. And so that's a real good level set in the beginning. Secondly, we're about 85 percent hands on. So we've eroded a lot of that classroom stuff. Uh, very practical base. We have very small class sizes with a really, really even instructor to student ratio. We don't like to exceed that too much. So we really like that. There's nowhere to hide. We tell them that we're going to call people out. You're going to have to show us that you can do the work. So all of that really makes a difference, makes a huge difference. The other thing too, that I think a lot of people are surprised when they hear about our program is that our average age is around 27 years old. In these wow. So these are folks that have had some more life experience and we like that. We've had some phenomenal, very young folks come to the program without question. But we really like to see, and that's just what we happen to draw, somebody with a little more life experience that says, okay, I'm aware of how unique this opportunity is. I'm going to take it seriously. The other thing too, the final part about that is that we're not training to these advanced high level skill sets. We're focusing on entry level work that moves the needle. And we're not doing that in a vacuum. We've looked at data, we've drawn all of that, and there's no surprise. Wheels, tires, brakes, PMs, that's the kind of stuff that 
you're, you're drawing revenue. So when I get asked, well, what are you doing for uh, transmission rebuilds or engine overhauls? I go, are you going to let the entry level technician do that? And then also, how much of that work are you really doing in your shop for the most part? Right. So right. We, by shifting that and not trying to sell these students that they're going to be working on a NASCAR race team for their first job and they're going to be getting dirty and, and doing some PMs for a while, by presenting that realistic expectation, that realistic education, we've had a much better outcome. Well, I, I look at like any advisory committee meeting that I've ever been to, the employers talk about the importance of showing up on time. They talk about, you know, being prepared in terms of like you're coming to, to work prepared and ready to work and an attitude, making sure that, you know, you're taking direction well and you're coachable. And I think there's so much of that that you can land home over that period of time to where it is something where when they walk in the door, if they do nothing but hit those things, I mean, that that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, we always joke that if our students just pushed a broom for five weeks and they were on time and eager, they'd still get hired, right? And, and it's really true. That's what <laughs> yeah. you, you are looking for someone with the basic understanding and that growth potential and the interest to grow. We all learned. We all learned that not, not a single person here was born with a wrench in their hand. They had to learn and they had to start somewhere. So if that so happens to be that you're 27 years old and you're coming out of a five-week program and you're eager to hit the ground running, fantastic. It's, that's, that's what we want. We want someone eager. So we really focus on that. And then our program as well, we track attendance. We, we make them clock in. We get them ready for that. And we communicate at least on a weekly basis, direct from our instructors to the hiring companies. So they're going to know if something's going on. They're going to know if we find a deficiency. And we're going to communicate with that so we can really take that ball of clay in five weeks and do our best to make it exactly where it needs to be. Well, and a piece of that that I really, really enjoy and, and respect about what you guys do is you're taking some of that pressure off of the shop too, because a lot of times if you're bringing in somebody that's super, super green, you got to be really, really hands-on. And we've all been in shops where Monday morning comes and it's complete chaos and that person ends up kind of out on an island by themselves at least you can give them some form of structure to 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 even be familiar with whether it's tooling or um, you know how to take management I, it, like anything like it it just it helps maybe take some of that initial onboarding pressure off of off of a shop I I've, I've got to feel that's that's true most definitely and our instructors let them know that you know the transaction isn't complete when you walk out the door they are always in contact with our students and if they've got a question or they want to just bounce something off them based on, you know, shop environment, whatever. They're always in contact. And, and we really value that. We want to keep that line of communication open because we don't want them having a bad day and making a rash decision and going somewhere else. We don't want them feeling like they're alone and they haven't explored those opportunities. Because what I think we forget as we advance in our careers is that that entry level individual, they usually just look and there's one person they can really approach and talk to. And that's their direct supervisor. And if that person isn't a good match for them, their whole view of that company and the industry at large is very tainted. So we really work hard to get around that and explain to them, don't let your boss being a jerk ruin a great opportunity for you and ruin an industry for you. How do you coach a young person up with that? Like maybe it, it is a little bit easier for that 27-year-old than it is that 20-year-old to, to kind of have that bucket of water thrown over your head. But there are still a lot of old school managers out there in terms of managing, managing by yelling, right? Like they just, mm -hmm. uh, everything's complete chaos. 
I do think our industry has gotten dramatically better in that regard, but I, we still got a ways to go. How do you, how do you talk to them about, Hey, some, sometimes it's not going to be easy. Sometimes this is going to be tough to take this feedback and, and not try to put it back in their face. You know, like it, it is, it's an interesting dynamic and that's not just specific to your graduates, but to young people in general. I, I feel like that's such an interesting dynamic. And then you throw on generational gaps in between, in, in, like on top of that, you mentioned the millennials, maybe working for a boomer or something like that. There's so many variables that go into that, that manager employee relationship. And in some cases you can't control who the manager is going to be. And so how, how do you, I mean, how do you coach them up so that they're uh, coachable and are open to feedback, whether it's the way they want to hear it or not? Yeah, that's the million dollar question, right? It's difficult, but we, we have done a few things and I, I wish that it was all because we had such great ideas off the bat. It was because we've learned through attrition and, and seeing some things go wrong. So yeah. firstly, it's that level set in the beginning before we have a very strict process of how we start working with the company and processize that entire thing. And there are a lot of touch points with the management team, with their direct supervisor to explain. And we have, we put what I believe is the right people in the right seats when they're communicating. When we're talking with a manager that's dealing with technicians, I want one of my instructors on there to speak that language and to understand them. That's an important thing to explain what they're getting. They can speak that language and do that. And I'm totally fine with that. Um, that's very important to kind of level set and say, hey, you're getting an entry level technician. You're not getting someone with five years experience. So treat them as such. And let's work together to bring them up. That's number one. Number two is that somewhere in that organization, there is someone pulling their hair out trying to find technicians. You need them on your team to say, hey, we're going to help you, but you need to help me on the inside with creating a conducive environment, making sure they're not thrown to the wolves, all that stuff. So fi find your allies, right? And once they see that we're producing good technicians and we're doing it at a really effective and fast rate, they're usually very eager to help. So all of those things kind of go into it. Yeah. And you, you hit that again, directly where we talk about it internally at Wrenchway as well, where you've got to have the right people that you're talking with and, and the people that will actually make stuff happen within. And this is after the sale, right? Like this is, this isn't something like, Hey, we're trying to find the right person to sell to. This is no, you've signed up. We need to make sure that we're finding the right people internally to push the right buttons so that our program is really effective and it sounds like you guys are doing the same in terms of just identifying that right person. And one of our rules of thumb, it's kind of interesting, is that our program we we have we call a champion. So we find the champion within within the shop, but that champion can't be a service manager. Rule of thumb is it can't be a service manager. And what we found is that they just get inundated with the the daily fires, and it's really hard for them to keep their finger on the pulse of something like recruiting or marketing to, to technicians. So we always try to find that kind of up and comer, the person that has aspirations to go beyond where they're at today. And it, it's proven to be far more effective when we find that right person because they're driven and they, they, they make it a priority. Whereas if it's somebody that, hey, their phone's ringing 5 million times a day and they're just trying to keep their head above water, you're adding another thing to their plate. It it really, really makes for trouble, you know, that, for them to prioritize something outside of the day-to-day -day operations. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's so easy. Uh, I know I was guilty of this, of being very cynical and saying, you know, this company culture thing is BS. It's just work. I got to go. I know what I need to do. No problem. But then to take a step back and watch this, and, and I, no names are being named, but we've worked or actively working with two very large, multi-billion dollar 
industries, okay? Companies within the industry. One listens to what we say and are passionate about it and they have a, an incredible success rate. The other had no idea what was going on and continues to not know what's going on and have a miserable time. So from a business perspective, we pretty much fired that company and we work with this one. So we're very lucky that we have the opportunity to do that, but it pays off in dividends because we have successful outcomes. So yes. it's important to do that. And I think eventually those companies can be coached to come around and do that. But it's one of those things where you can't export that plan. They need to import it. They need to be eager to do so. Well, that's not, I don't even think the two of our companies, but just in general, mm-hmm. one piece of advice I would give to shops, and this doesn't matter what size it is, treat your vendors like partners, because I think for the most part, the good vendors want to help you make your operation better, because that's going to eventually result in more business for them, but then just better working relationships. We we find that this, the, maybe the shops that we struggle the most with are almost combative to start off with. Mm-hmm. And we're like, no, 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 no. We're, we're, we want to help you out. <laughs> like, we're not against you. We're trying to help you. And the ones that are like, yeah, let's do it. Like, what can we do? And like, so then we're, you know, talking and interacting and and it's just a more fun relationship. But I know even growing up in a shop, my dad was one of those people that was very combative with <laughs> with his with his vendor partners. And I look back and I'm like, man, you didn't take advantage of a lot of stuff because you were so busy being defensive. Like just let the guard down and let these vendors help you. That's what you're paying them to do. So let them help you. And it still, I, to this day blows my mind how many people don't take, take advantage of the opportunities that vendors have for them. Absolutely. And, and you see it, we see it. There are folks within companies that if you don't win their support, it will be a nightmare. And that's, that's okay. That's, that's our headache at the, the higher levels contractually and doing all that stuff to do. But you need to be aware of what you're going into and do your best to get as many allies as possible. And not in a disingenuous way. It's presenting right. that value proposition. A lot of times we used to run into this a lot. HR was usually very resistant to us because they thought we were trying to come in and do their job for them. Yes. We've had to explain, no, 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 no. I'm going to pipeline individuals, allow you to do your job very well. And that's exactly what we want to do. And truly by making a company culture shift on our end that we were able finally to realize that, work became a lot easier. So it's okay to be wrong and it's okay to change and do that. It's just, I feel like a lot of folks in industry are very resistant to change. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And I I think similar to your company and your experience, that's the same stuff we've learned too, right? And I think some of it was just evolution on our end, not to pat, like not patting ourselves on the back because you do get beat up along the way and it is challenging. And especially in a market where I think you guys bring such a unique product in terms of bringing more people that wouldn't have been in the industry other than you going out and finding them. And it brings more people into this pipeline that we desperately need. I know you and I have talked about this before. I think when when our industry is really healthy is when we're all kind of rowing in the same direction and trying to support each other and and get more people into these shops because that's why they're frustrated in the first place. They can't find anybody, and it it is a it is a such a challenge because we put ourselves in such a deficit of talent that everybody's desperate and everybody's trying to, you know, here they want that that silver bullet that's just going to take care of everything. I just want to pay to make it go away. And mm-hmm. I, unfortunately, with this problem, it, it's not like even bringing in a young person, it still takes being proactive in having systems in place. And, and you're not just going to 
throw money at this and make it go away. Like you, you've got to put some work into this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so when we're looking at all of that and we're trying to kind of find an inroad to help assist those people, what we found is that sometimes you just have to take it very slow and, and that's okay. And you don't need to boil the ocean. We have folks come to us and say, I need a hundred technicians. I go, okay, well, let's start with two. We're going to start with two, see if they're going to work. And then we'll start talking about a little bit more. See if you like it, see if we like it, because it's just easier that way. And it's the right way to do it. I don't want to send uh, our students to a company that isn't going to be right for them. I don't think that's fair. I want people to be able to take my word and say, this is a good company and, and you'll have success there. So we really pride ourselves in that. And when you talk about kind of those changes and, and that adaptation, let's say you don't want to change. What are you going to do? There's not enough. There, the output is, is not there. The, it, it, this is a math problem we're faced with. And so you got to start doing something else because the number of technicians are just not there. It's not going to be there. No, not for a long time, unfortunately. And I think that's when we come to the realization that this isn't something where you're going to flip the switch and all of a sudden just have a flood of techs come in. Like, And I, you guys are bringing so much value in that regard because you are bringing fresh blood in. But, you know, industry-wide, it's such a such a point of, of heartache for so many people and you feel terrible for them because you know you, I've been in those shoes and it, it sucks. It's not, it's not fun. Have you heard of Runtway School Connect? Runtway School Connect is a free tool that makes it easier for schools to connect with local shops and dealerships and get the resources they need to attract students to technician programs and educate them about the industry. Schools can post a request for donations and resources from shops, and shops can post resources they have available to schools in their area. Shops and schools can visit Runtway.com to contact us and learn more. Link is in the show notes. I've got a question with for you in regard to that student-employer relationship. And say you get one that's maybe not going smoothly. How do you how do you tell if it's a management issue or a person issue? Like like because especially with with young people coming in, maybe they aren't presenting the the right attitude, or maybe the attitude that they they said they they were going to bring, or there's times where maybe a manager is just really, really hard on young people and it's, you, you maybe can notice trends, but I'm curious how you kind of isolate the two and try to figure out, hey, okay, we, we want to make this a little smoother. What do we do in order to try and figure out what the core of the problem is? Well, one of the most impactful things that we have, and we're very lucky to have it, is our instructors. So we can talk to our instructors. And, and say, you know, how was this guy or gal during the class? Did you see any of this that they're talking about? Because five weeks is a long time to fake it, right? Yeah. So that's kind of our first step. And so we want to make sure that everything's all right. And then we want them to have a conversation with the, the student. They've had a five-week working relationship with them. They have no problem picking up the phone and saying, hey, what's going on? Yeah, yeah. I hear you're having some trouble. What can we, is it something that you're missing? Like, what, what is it, right? So that's step one, going to it objectively, no finger pointing, nothing like that. If we start to hear consistent trends, it's, it's pretty obvious, right? So right. we know that some shops have bad apples in it or a bad culture or whatever it may be, or just stress and a, a hard time for that individual to come into it. So that sometimes there's not much you can do except to give guidance. And if they want to adhere, that's great. If not, you're likely going to be looking for a new technician in a short period of time. That's I, unfortunate. No, and I, I, that's not exclusive to you guys either. I remember this is probably four years ago. 
I, and this is why I'm really passionate about shops looking in the mirror and understanding, you know, what their, the perception of them is from a staffing standpoint, because I remember talking to a shop, they were struggling to find technicians. And I had just, out of curiosity, had called a few technicians in the area and just asked, you know, what, hey, what, what do you think of this place? Every single one of them said terrible managers. They knew people that worked there and they absolutely hated it. So I called up the manager and this was a very uncomfortable conversation to have. But I said, hey, listen, here's here's what I'm hearing in out in the market. And this is just from random people that I happen to have relationships with. And he blew up like blew up on me. And during the call, during uh, the call, during the call of like, they weren't, they weren't wrong. Like I'm hearing it right now. Like this is, this is awful. And, and, you know, I think that's where sometimes I I hope if you're in that leadership, like capacity that you can see that and identify that and either coach that manager, because if, if you've got, somebody that might be unrealistic about what their the perception of them is or thinks that they're something that they're not and not even in like I'm not trying to insult anybody or anything like that it's more so they need coaching or they need something different because they're just going to they're going to cycle through talent like crazy and we've seen it and to, when when I just made calls to random people and said hey what what's your perception on this and uh, on the shop and they just all of them like it wasn't even like trying to beat around the bush and like yeah well i heard they're okay but it was like no they're a terrible place to work and, I, and then i go tell them and then just get absolutely screamed at i'm like okay like they weren't wrong like this this is uh and, and if that's the perception amongst technicians how in the world are they going to get any more technicians Mm-hmm. Yeah, we one of my favorite things to ask companies when we're on exploratory calls and everything. I'll ask what their you know new hire retention rate is for for one year, and and then they always ask what ours is, and I'm very transparent. I'll explain it to them, and I go, look, if yours is low, I can't. I'm not a miracle worker. I'm not going to come in. I mean, probably no surprise to you, but there are shops with a zero percent retention rate. They just they know that no one is going to make it past a year, and we're running at like 120 percent. We have to just keep hiring. Well, that's not a very effective model. And maybe you should just take a, you know, the term, the tactical pause and identify what is going on here because that is not good. And I just don't think that individuals in a position of power are aware how costly that is. Oh. Just how insanely costly that is. Not just in dollars either. Their culture, you yep. know, it, how do you build a team that wants to work together if it's the mm-hmm. different team, like every two months, you know, yep. I, I just don't see, you can't even, you don't even have time to create a culture. Correct. And that trickle down, you know, what happens really trickle up is when you're looking at this, you have, let's say a great A-level technician who's loyal and has always worked there. Great. They keep losing entry-level technicians and now they have to do entry-level work. That's not a good environment either, right? So you're punishing your best people that are staying there. So you need to, you need to help out. Boy, is that a good point. I mean, I, veteran technicians do not love doing like the basic maintenances and the like the, you know, I, <laughs> it is, it, it's crazy to me that this is, it's so obvious that this hurts when you churn young people through your business. And yet we still find ourselves in the predicament where 42% leave within the first two years mm-hmm. they're, they're in the industry. And it's, 
it's it, it feels like we're just constantly shooting ourselves in the foot, and yeah. it's it, it, it's frustrating <laughs> to it say is. the least. It is very frustrating. <laughs> but when when it works, when we have an individual, on average, our uh, students after a five week program, from entry to exit, after that five weeks, they end up making on average the median is going to be around seventeen thousand dollars more every year for their entry level work. That's entry level tax. They continue their career. They're off to the races. That's six-figure earning, no problem. You're going to get there with minimal to zero debt, zero, and coming through this, and you have a great experience, right? So the ones who get it and, and understand it, they are thrilled, and they yeah. will keep coming back to the well and doing that. Those who don't understand it, that's fine. Whatever they need to do to make their shop run at whatever efficiency level they believe, go for it. But having people leave is not a good look. It's not good for your business. No, no, it really isn't. And I, again, I think it goes back to the type of person you're bringing in and why you guys have had the success that you have because you're you're doing what a lot of shops should do in general when they're recruiting even people that have been doing it for 20 years is that you're looking at the person you're not looking at the 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 actual skill level that they're bringing of course with a veteran technician you need that skill level because you're probably paying them accordingly but don't just look at that. Look at look at the look at the attributes that they have that are going to help make you a healthier shop. And you know, in in our case, what we see a lot is people just wait too long. They they're not looking for talent when they should, mm-hmm. and it results in them making desperate hires and not doing it correctly in terms of vetting the people. And the fact that you guys are doing that up front and and defining those people and allowing them to do their due diligence, the, the both the shop and the, the you know the student, just a, it's a really cool system you guys have developed. And I I applaud everything that you guys are doing because I just I, I think the world of it. I think you guys are killing it out there. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And you guys are are nothing to shake a stick at either. I think the way you've approached it is brilliant, and you're really helping the industry massively. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Now, how, how do if people are interested in learning about the program in general, how do they how do they find you? Yeah, well, AmericanDieselTraining.com is our website. I'm the only Aaron Picozzi in the world. So I think a quick <laughs> Google search will find some way to probably find my home address. But you know, please don't come there. But, uh, you know, LinkedIn, all of that, easy to find. American Diesel Training Centers is the name of the company. AmericanDieselTraining.com is how you find us. All right. So are you... Uh, a UNC basketball fan? You know what? Now I kind of have to be. And it's a real dagger in, in uh, my father's heart. He, uh, he's a Duke alum. Oh, so, wow. So I might as well have just, you know, d- d- just completely disgraced the fan. So this Final Four thing, the, this past Final lot, Four. Yeah. It <laughs> well, it was fun to watch in general and fun to watch what you guys are doing. I uh, appreciate you taking the time out of your extremely hectic schedule to, to be able to join us and, and uh, look forward to the next time. Absolutely. This has been great. 